0: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and Penn State University, I'm Chris Beam.
1: I'm
2: Candace Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli and welcome to Democracy Works. This week we are talking about Amazon and our guest is Alec McGillis, a senior reporter for ProPublica and author of the book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America. And this book uh, stood out to me, um, because it it talks about a lot of the things we already know about Amazon, but it also introduces some bigger questions about Amazon's relationship to the governments and its its workers, and just looks at them in a in a new way. So, before we we get to all that, Chris, why don't you start us off just by reminding us of of some of the things that we already know about Amazon and how they sort of fit into the context of what we talk about on this show?
0: Yeah. Okay. I mean, the first thing, you know, I think the first thing we all know that we need to say is that uh, Amazon is an incredibly successful business model and has grown exponentially in what, 20, 30 years? Last year, in 2020, Amazon hired almost a half a million people. I mean, there's just nothing like that in in human history. And, you know, and they were just so well positioned for this pandemic and took advantage of it and they give people what they want. And so they're very, very successful. On the other hand, the other thing that most of us know is that Amazon is, is not a great place to work. They have incredibly high turnover. 3% 3% a week, 150% annually, which is twice as high as its peers. Um, it was also cited by OSHA as being one of the dirty dozen as far as worker safety. They have timed bathroom breaks. A lot of times you don't have any interaction with your with your peers and you're even fired by text. Uh, you're, you're timed according to some algorithm in terms of how much you're uh, expected to do an hour. Amazon
1: is our frenemy. It's the company that we love to hate. And it's also the company and companies like it are the companies that Facebook, I think is kind of a similar situation that um, we both wish were not there and also depend on heavily. And, you know, the thing about Amazon And companies like Amazon, I think that's important to say, and companies like Amazon is that their CEOs are some of the richest people alive and their people who work for them are often people who are also on public assistance. It's important for us to kind of tie together these business practices with how there are ramifications for how our government runs and even larger ramifications for how democracy runs um, if workers, if people aren't well cared for, even you know, like after they work forty hours a week, are they still able to pay for their children's food and supplies? But also, are they able to really participate in democracy? Do they have the time? Do they have the wherewithal?
0: And and you know, before Amazon, the the frenemy or what I maybe even more less friendly, less friend part of the enemy was uh, Walmart mm-hmm. because Walmart was, you know, came into these rural communities and, and almost single-handedly destroyed uh, the main street. Right. And yeah. Starbucks comes in and everybody, everybody has a Starbucks. And so now, you know, many of these local coffee shops um, that have existed for decades are, are put out of business. I mean, I, I don't see that as a, you know, as a sign of corporate evil, you know, I mean, people, you know, no one put a gun to anybody's head and said, you must now shop at Walmart. It was because if you were going into town and, and you, you here was this one-stop shop where you could get everything and it was cheap and people just chose that model and Starbucks started because most of American coffee was, not very good yeah, so, it is it,
1: absolutely right on that. I think the issue and I think what Alex's book really highlights is that government helps large corporations do the things that they do. So for example, there's no income tax in some states right And so then that means that businesses are going to want to come there and they take advantage of that or that cities will you know, give all of these subsidies to these
0: large corporations. Right. And that is why it makes sense for us to talk about it in, in this context, within, in, a, in a context of, of democracy. The government is cowed at minimum and controlled at maximum by these same corporations. And so despite the fact that, that labor and people have power through unions and through democracy and through politics, in fact, they cannot use that power, they cannot employ that power because it's not a fair fight. And I think that is pretty fundamental in terms of what we are talking about here and, and what we are genuinely able to achieve through democratic politics.
2: All right, well, I think that that is, both of you provided some very important context here for the issues at stake. I think Alec will expand uh, on these fundamental questions a lot more and, and fill in some of the details with the reporting from his book. So let's go now to the interview with Alec McGillis. Alec McGillis, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: So uh, your book, Fulfillments, is a fascinating look uh, at how Amazon has impacted the institutions that comprise our democracy and also reshaped um, some of America's social fabric, perhaps. To set the stage for all of that, can you talk a little bit about Jeff Bezos's political philosophy and how that impacts the the way that Amazon does business.
3: Sure. I mean I think the best way to describe him really as is, is a kind of a classic libertarian tech libertarian and with a but but a fairly extreme form of that with a with very little very little regard concern for um, sort of the the nation as a whole, society as a whole, democracy as a whole. There was a one kind of remarkable moment as I was reporting this book. I went to speak with Nick Hanauer, who's this early investor in Amazon, um, who's you know, became whose wealth increased uh, greatly through that early investment, but has since turned on the company quite strongly. And uh, I was meeting with him in his office way up uh, overlooking uh, Elliott Bay in Seattle, and a couple of years ago. And it was just as Amazon had announced the top twenty finalists for its second headquarters, and that list included virtually none of the cities that could really have used a boost by getting that second headquarters. Um, all there, all these cities, you know, in the middle of the country, struggling cities that had applied for the second headquarters and it would have been a great opportunity for the, for the company in one fell swoop to really kind of rebalance some of the, uh, the, these economic disparities that we have around the country with that second headquarters, which is really kind of the main concern of my book, that that regional inequality that Amazon has exacerbated. And they could have done such made such a big difference by putting the the second headquarters in like a St. Louis or Detroit or Cleveland. And uh, I asked a camera about that and why they hadn't done that. And it wasn't even on the finalist list, you know? And And he started laughing kind of maniacally and he said, you don't understand Jeff Bezos at all, do you? And I said, what do you mean? He said, he doesn't care about that sort of thing at all like that is simply not a concern to him that that kind of notion of what might be best for the country or society it is of no concern it's strictly strictly what is best for for the company the company's bottom line Um, so a very extreme form of that bottom line shareholder mentality and and that that moment really stuck with me and and it's quoted at length and in even more sort of color um in the book
2: you also spent some time in the book, sort of contrasting that that approach you're just describing with Amazon, with kind of a, a previous era of, of industry. Writing about, you know, uh, Bethlehem Steel and and you know people like like uh, Carnegie and and Rockefeller, who were, you know, much has been written about sort of. Their you know pros and cons of of who they were and you know how they approach business and and philanthropy and and, and whatnot. So they're you know certainly not saints, but I think that there is a, a contrast to be had between like their approach to the you know relationship between business, civil society, and the public good, and you know what we're seeing now with with Amazon. Can you talk a little bit more about that that contrast?
3: Sure. I mean, I think we have to be careful here, of course, because at one level, all philanthropy is not ideal, right? And it's it's really, you know, to to have this small handful of insanely wealthy men, and they're mostly men, deciding how to spend the zillions instead of instead of paying the fair share of taxes, where we all, as as citizens, through our elected government, to decide what we're going to invest in. That 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 kind of large scale philanthropy is. Is a, you know is fundamentally flawed in that regard, and, and there's a there's a um, I, thought, I thought a really wonderful articulation of that in the book, in in the chapter on Seattle, where Amazon had fought off a tax in Seattle that was going to pay for more housing and homelessness services in Seattle, and then after they successfully uh, killed this new tax, they they threw some fairly modest money. Philanthropic dollars toward that cause, and a local activist um, said, "You know, this is not. I'm not impressed by this. This is not how it's supposed to work." But even if one then accepts philanthropy, large scale philanthropy as as a reality, it is striking. The contrast between Bezos and um, and the the titans of the Gilded Age certainly is striking. That I mean, there was sort of commentary on this this week after Bezos took off for the for outer space, and you know the contrast between. Him going on his on his joyride, his 11-minute joyride, and for the company that's been costing him, I guess, about a billion dollars a year, um, and and then uh, the the you know the, all the kind of investments that were made by um, by by the Gilded Age plutocrats, the, all of the Carnegie libraries and, and all the rest, and you know a very very stark stark contrast there. The as you mentioned, Beth Steele. Actually, one of the striking things I found when I was doing my chapter on on Bethlehem Steel, um, and and its huge steel mill in in Baltimore that is now a bunch of Amazon warehouses, was that the that company actually its its leadership, actually I, I found very reminiscent of Bezos in their in the extremity of their of their plutocracy. That the, the head of that Charles Schwab was the head of um, the company back in the teens and twenties, and he. You know, had the largest mansion in, in New York City, then built for himself an entire French peasant village in western Pennsylvania. Um, the company strongly discouraged their executives against getting involved in local civic affairs, um, just didn't see that it's worth their time. And it reminded me very much of sort of how Amazon has existed in Seattle, where there's been a similar kind of weird Kind of separation from f- between from the city, the civic life of that city, and the company. The mayor of Seattle, for in the early um, the second decade of the century, um, never met Jeff Bezos once, which um, is a pretty striking fact.
2: You also talk about the Seattle City Council being unable to really deal with some of these these issues surrounding taxes and and housing and 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 homelessness that had you know sprung up in the the wake of of Amazon's expansion I mean it's what happened with the the, the city Council and just kind of that that breakdown of really the the governing structure not not being equipped to to deal with everything that that Amazon brought to the city
3: yeah it was just an incredible episode I mean this is in the spring of 2018 and the city is has developed one of the very worst homelessness problems in the country really basically just second only to to the Bay Area and um and they and you've got progressive members of the city council along with activists who want to do something about this they they come up with the idea of a of a tax on the city's largest employers, um, notably Amazon, but al- also some others. It's basically a per employee tax. And the company is not happy about it. Amazon's not happy about this, but manages to negotiate the size of the tax down quite a bit. Um, they negotiate with the city's fairly centrist mayor, business friendly mayor, and they get it down to the point where it's just it's really just, you know, loose change for Amazon in terms of in the broader scheme of things. And Um, So, they agree to this compromise, the the, uh, tax passes the city council, the mayor signs it into law, and just a day or two after the mayor signs it into law, the company launches, uh, starts funding a huge uh, push to repeal the tax by referendum on that falls ballot. It spends lots of money on this repeal effort. And... um, and it's clearly um, resonating. There's not just because they're spending so much on, on it, but because the company manages to tap into this really kind of, really kind of, you know, unpleasant strain, kind of toxic strain in the local politics. A city that's, um, you know, superficially super liberal, you know, 90, 92% vote against Trump in 2016. But a lot of voters who are people who are, who are not happy about the homelessness crisis are not happy about the prospect of, of, New shelters being built in their neighborhood, or new affordable housing being built in their neighborhood—a real strong kind of NIMBY strain—and and and then also a real sense of protectiveness around Amazon. This this sense that yes, Amazon um, is huge and kind of scary, um, and they've brought us all this traffic in town and made our city kind of crazy. But on the other hand, they're also the reason why my little arts and crafts bungalow that I got for two hundred grand. A decade or two ago, is now worth a million bucks, and and do we really want to kill the golden goose? And and you know, yes, they're a big, scary giant, but they're our giant, and and so Amazon tapped into all that, and the city council saw that this referendum uh, push was had a lot of steam behind it, and, and they were very worried about it provoking kind of a broader kind of conservative reactionary backlash on that Falls ballot and other races, and they decided to repeal the very tax that they had passed just a month after they passed it it was just really kind of humiliating moment for the council all but two members of the council voted to repeal the tax
2: and and we of course see you know cities across the country I don't know bending over backwards it seems to both the, the the HQ2 search of course but but even just in in competing for you know other other Amazon you know warehouses or, or other facilities that the kind of tech corridor sort of their 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 tech infrastructure is it just sort of a, a foregone conclusion at this point that you know we're going to to continue to see places across the country offering big tax breaks because of the the jobs that Amazon can bring to their, their regions.
3: Well, I think it's important first of all to talk, focus on what we're talking about in these situations. There's there's two there's kind of two different levels of this. There's the there was the unseemly sweepstakes for their second headquarters, which was this crazy bonanza that promised a, a real just huge prize of initially fifty thousand jobs, fifty thousand high paid jobs, um, and just billions in investment in a whole new big corporate campus, and that ended up being won by the Already the wealthiest metro area in the country, Washington D.C., and and that all that all was revealed to have been just kind of a big joke because they ended up going with the most obvious candidates in the end. But then there's this oh other much more prevalent uh, game of the warehouses and the data centers and where they where are they going to put those, and it has just been incredible to watch just. All these towns and cities throwing subsidies at the company for those, um, and it's incredible because the the warehouse jobs, of course, are are not high paying. Um, they the warehouses bring all sorts of additional burdens on su- public public services, like the, all the trucks on the roads. Um, the data centers barely employ anyone; uh, they employ just a few dozen people per per data center, and and the subsidies are especially confounding because because the, especially with the warehouses, the company really needs to have them just about everywhere now. With their, they're so huge. We're buying so much stuff from them. They have the promise of two and a one day delivery. They have to be everywhere. So it's not like if a given place says, no, we're not gonna give you the subsidy, that that they can just go to the next state over. No, they have to be where you are. Mm-hmm. And so you actually have more leverage than you realize. But nonetheless, they're just, yes, these, these communities keep throwing the, the subsidies at them just just last month um, I was speaking to the Dayton Rotary Club in Dayton Ohio a city that features very much in the book and and unbeknownst to me the comp the city was about to announce the company' was about to announce they were, that they were building a new fulfillment center just outside Dayton at the airport there and this one was going to be getting a whole new swath of just automatically swath of subsidies from uh, mainly from the state um, state Economic Development Agency and so it just keeps going on and on and on. That said, I have seen just recently a few places where there's starting to be pushback. There's a there's a fight going on now in Western Pennsylvania outside Pittsburgh. There's another one down south that I heard about recently. So there are some places where you have residents starting to realize, wake up to this problem, realize that it's that it's not a good deal for all sorts of reasons, and bringing more scrutiny um, to to this.
2: Yeah, yeah, that that really is is a, a fascinating story you tell about the the employee who sort of works these you know this this progression of jobs that sort of seem to pay less and less, and also I think it, it seems to be to be more and more sort of demoralizing kind of work. Um, you know, I, I couldn't help but think about um, as I was you know reading some of those stories about the the warehouse workers and and whatnot, thinking about my my grandmother who worked in a, a, a textile factory for for most of her life, and it was you know hard backbreaking work but the the sense i always got from her was that they were kind of in it together you know they would help each other out and go out for breakfast after they finished the the third shift and and hang out on the weekends and i don't want to overly romanticize that by any means but it does seem again that you know amazon m- makes some deliberate steps as as you describe to seem to discourage that that type of behavior to really focus on individual worker Performance. Can you um, talk about what what some of those things are?
3: Sure. I mean, you're, I mean you you describe it very well. That the the shift and in, in what the work sort of mass working class employment looks like now that we've gone moved from the mills and the factory to the to the warehouse. And and I, I really try to bring that across. Most of all in this chapter on on the steel mill in Baltimore it used to be the biggest steel mill in the world and is now the um now just this massive logistics hub um, with uh, just all these different warehouses, including now th- they have three Amazon warehouses on this one in this one business park. The, I can't even keep up with it. Um another one's been opening up now. And and so, and I focus on this one worker who who worked at the steel mill for thirty years, and then after it went bankrupt, he he went um, in his late sixties to work at Amazon, driving a forklift. And his work at the steel mill was so dangerous, so strenuous, he got injured a couple times, but nonetheless, he so preferred it to the work at the warehouse because. He got paid much more, of course, was union job, but he just found it so much more meaningful. He was actually making something. He was making steel, um, and he had 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 all this camaraderie with his fellow workers. The, I met him actually at a luncheon for retirees monthly luncheon that still happens every month, and all these guys get together still and and. That's just, that just doesn't exist in the warehouses. I mean, it's just this incredibly atomized, isolating kind of work. Um, you're, you're all kind of scattered about at your different stations on the conveyor belt or in the, you're, you're, in a sense, you're interacting more with, with robots than with each other. Um, if you're a picker now, um, pickers used to, you know, roam the, the quarters looking for items, all the stuff that we demanded. And now you just stand there at the conveyor belt and the robot brings the stack of stuff to you and you take the item out of the shelves and drop it in the box and then comes another robot. So you're really kind of working along, you're working with the robot at the behest of the robots. And um, no, there's very little opportunity for interaction. The um, there's actually even less now during the pandemic because one of the measures they took to try to you know, reduce the spread of COVID was to, to ha- take jobs that used to have a couple people working them together, like, say, loading a truck, and they turned those into one-person jobs. So, what little interaction that, what that did happen is, is is even less likely now. There's another worker, former worker at the steel mill that I spoke with recently who still lives nearby, and he, he said it was so striking that when workers leave the warehouse now they go screaming out of there at like high speeds you can hear like the engines roaring and they're just desperate to get the hell out of there and get home and the the company that that owns the the whole this whole uh, business Park now has had to put in huge speed bumps to try to deal with this problem of the speeding. And it was such a contrast with um, back in the day when he would just roll out of work with his coworkers. They all knew each other. You'd roll into the bar or the diner, depending on the time of day. And I brought this up with uh, another Amazon worker um, in New York recently. And and he, he, he laughed. He said, yeah, there's no way I'm going to go have a beer with Joe after work. I don't even know who Joe is.
2: The other thing that, that I found... Fascinating. Was just the the sheer scale of government contracts that Amazon has procured at the expense of, of small businesses in, in many places. Um, what can you? How did that sort of start, and, and how has it expanded uh, over time? You know, in terms of of how Amazon interacts with the federal government and maybe other organizations related to it, like schools, colleges, et, et cetera.
3: Sure. I mean, this is really kind of happening at a couple of different levels. At at the federal level, Amazon has gotten just massive contracts for mostly for the cloud. So it's it has this incredibly lucrative arm, Amazon Web Services, um, where you know all the all these data centers um, that that are where Amazon's essentially you know offering companies and the government um, its its servers, you know, just to keep so that you, the government or or smaller business, don't have to deal with that on your own. Um, and so it's has got massive con- contracts from the federal government for, for that. And uh, there was a big, huge one. It's $500 million, I think, from the CIA a few years ago. And they're still in the running now for this really big one, $10 billion contract from the Pentagon to put the entire Pentagon in the cloud. Um, but then... At at this at sort of the, the more local level, Amazon has also gotten very much into the business of procurement, of government procurement, and um, because it recognizes just how much money is spent on that. You know, all the all the stuff that local, state, and federal governments and school districts, all sorts of public sector entities spend on on all their supplies. You know, whether it's office supplies or um, just furniture, all the rest, and. And so Amazon has made a big push in that direction and their basic pitch to to say a local government, city government or school district is, look, why don't you just buy your stuff from us direct from the website, just the way you would at home with all your personal stuff? Just as you know, it's so easy. It's so convenient. And don't worry if you're if you're worried about not supporting your local the local supplier, the local office supplier, dealer, say the local Dunder Mifflin that's been that you've been working with. You can still buy from them on Amazon. We'll have like a little marker that says local supplier. And then they go to the office supply company and they say, hey, look, um, your clients are, are all moving to Amazon. So why don't you start selling on Amazon too? It'll be fine. And you can sell to the whole world too. And what that leaves out, of course, is that amazon now as middleman is going to be collecting a huge cut of that commerce um they used to be direct local commerce and now amazon's going to collect anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of that commerce and it's going to be really it's going to eat deeply into that uh, that local businesses margins and and that money is is that so much of that revenue business is essentially going to be just kind of sucked out of the local community into seattle into washington into these insanely um, hyper prosperous cities where so much of our wealth is now based that is how this problem is happening that is how these regional disparities are happening and how we're ending up with this incredibly unhealthy out of whack situation that the book that is at root what the book is about which is this incredibly unhealthy regional disparity where you have some cities that are just insanely expensive and have just have utter displacement and homelessness and loss of character and then a whole bunch of other cities that are just really struggling and and seeing their their basic wealth and commerce being sucked out of them, and 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 this and that that procurement game is is one part of that. I, I focus that 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 tale in in El Paso, Texas, in the book, but it's happening everywhere.
2: So as as you said, this is sort of like the, a big existential problem facing the country, and I I think about in thinking about you know what do we do about this? What can in individuals do? I just, I wonder if there's a parallel here to the argument that some people make about climate change where, yes, you know, we as individuals can take action to reduce our, you know, to, to drive less, to, to buy a plug-in car, to buy an energy efficient appliances, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we can all make decisions to buy less from Amazon or perhaps not at all. But I just, I wonder uh, if that's, Kind of futile in in light of some of these massive things that are happening on just just such a such a much larger scale.
3: So, I think there are a few things that we can do. I I, I think of this kind of in three prongs. One prong is we've already kind of touched on, which is the workers and and so just you know anything that one can do to. To support them in their in their ongoing organizing fight, because that's going to be going on for years now. It's going to take a very long time, but that so that's that's one prong, um, the worker conditions in the warehouses. Second prong is, I think, probably more promising one in the short term is this whole fight now in Washington around antitrust. There's really a whole lot more momentum now, recognition around the fact that that one reason. Um, that we've got this really unhealthy concentration of wealth in certain parts of this country and in our, in our economy is is that our economies has gotten so concentrated in certain companies and and that we're really back at sort of a gilded age moment with 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 corporate concentration and so for that's an issue that can seem very abstract and you know antitrust is such a sort of abstract kind of cold word but. But I think for voters to really start thinking more about that issue as something that they prioritize and care about the way they do healthcare or education or or other kind of core issues, Um, because there are gonna be major fights around that in these next couple of years. uh, Biden name to the Federal Trade Commission, this young woman who, you know, just a few years ago as a law student wrote this iconic paper on Amazon and Monopoly. She's now the chairperson of the Federal Trade Commission at age 32. It's really pretty extraordinary. But then there's also a lot of legislation going through Congress now. There going to be big, big fights over it about breaking up the company, somehow reining them in. So, to as a citizen, to care about that fight, I think is another thing that, that we can do um, and to vote on it. But then the third you know is what you've you've touched on is the consumer aspect and i do believe we have agency in this regard i'm not i've not been advocating a boycott but the fact is that that the reason the company got so vastly bigger and more powerful this past year 40% increase in sales 60 billion dollar gain in Bezos's personal wealth all these additional warehouses stock almost doubling. That was all us. That was us. That was us embracing with extraordinary alacrity the one-click life this past year, arguably even in excess of what the public health conditions demanded. And so I do think it's important, if we care about all things we've been talking about this hour, that we moderate that and that we somehow Return. We break out of that habit to some degree. It's not about cold turkey necessarily, but it's about moderation and about about returning to the physical spaces around us. Not just as shoppers and consumers, but you know, going back to the theater, going back to the to the movies, going back to the restaurants, getting breaking out of that hunkered down uh, atomized laptop life. And where you don't, where you have zero interaction whatsoever as a consumer, you're not even going to lift your head probably when the guy drops off your box on your doorstep, and and so to break out of that, I think is very important. I think we actually do have more impact in this regard, even than in climate change, where because it's there's there's something a bit more direct here. This this really it's us as consumers who have. Who have been driving this the extraordinary growth of this, com- of this company? We do, in fact, still have agency.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, so, Alec, I, I know that um, many of our our listeners are involved or or, or passionate about grassroots uh, causes and, and and organizations on everything from ending gerrymandering to advocating for for ranked choice voting, et cetera, et cetera. Are there organizations in that vein that that exist or or are are cropping up around some of these issues related to Amazon we've been talking about.
3: Two groups that I would mention in this regard, one is a really pretty extraordinary group called the Institute for Local Self Reliance that has been around for years now, um, and they are doing a lot of work in this whole realm on supporting local business, supporting local communities, and supporting local. You know, government really, um, and so that's that's one to look at, and they are now part of a, a broader coalition that's a sprung up just in the past couple of years. That is basically, you know, a broad anti-Amazon coalition that's called the Athena Coalition, and you can find out more about about them online. Athena, as in, as in the goddess, um, and so th- th- those would be two places to start. But then there's also, I think, just generally, there are the these local efforts that are springing up now around around the, the the additional warehouses. So just to keep an eye out for those in your area, because there will be more warehouses coming. They're not, if we do, if we keep buying as much as we're buying from them, they're going to have to keep building more warehouses. So you're going to have more of these warehouse deals. So that's one more thing to look for um, on the horizon.
2: All right. Well, uh, we will we will leave it there. Uh, Alec, thank you for for your your work on this topic. I highly encourage listeners to check out your book, Fulfillments, which we will link to in the show notes. And thank you for taking the time to join us today.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Candice, we talked about how Amazon is one of these. Major dramatic developments, uh, incredibly successful, incredibly powerful, um, and what a you know how difficult it is to organize labor under any circumstances in the United States. I just want to maybe start by saying that it is still not great, but it is better now than it has been in. I, I mean you know, since Reagan for sure, and maybe since like LBJ, which goes back a long time, 60 years, 70 years. This has always been kind of a back and forth in American politics and American society. Um, But, you know, you get the sense that enough of these stories are, are, you know, leaking out into the public that, you know, people are more open to the idea of not just helping workers, in terms of bathroom breaks and efficiency demands, but also in terms of checking the power of, of organizations like Amazon.
1: Yeah. I mean, ostensibly public opinion matters, but it's, you know, policy is going to matter too. And how many states are now right to work states. Right. Um, And, you know, I think also local um, dynamics matter so much here. So, Thinking about, for example, a lot of, you know, here I am in North Carolina, we're all like cheering for people in Alabama to get a union, but we don't live there. And we're not within that space in that town navigating the situation there, which on the one hand, you know, from the Amazon side, right, there's reports of intimidation, um, Amazon uh, has been, you know, reported to ensure that its workers don't have a sense of social cohesion. They barely know each other. And then there's the issue of what is the alternative for good work in that space? For you know, for decent pay jobs in that area. And so that also matters. That if Amazon is the best that you have. Are you going to uh, do anything that you think is going to go
0: against it? It reminds me of the situation that um, that Alec talked about with regards to Seattle, mm-hmm. an incredibly progressive area. But when the, when it came down to Amazon saying, well, if you do this, if you let in these kind of if we change these standards and, and bring in these new um, housing ideas, you might lose some of this incredible um, real estate windfall that you've received in part because of the role of Amazon in the community. And so this very progressive place said, well, you know, yeah, maybe maybe we don't want that so much just because you know self-interest is, a, is an incredibly powerful thing.
1: If I'm not mistaken, Alec calls them superficially progressive. And so far, right, like you're saying, is that they're kind of like, hey, you know, we should have fairness and we should have egalitarianism. But we also want to have our very um, high uh, return on our home investments. And, you know, it it does make for strange bedfellows.
0: As you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, that you were what you were describing is is something, again, that is fundamental to our democratic politics, and that is this bifurcation associated with class and with urban rural. And my goodness, this sounds so much like what just happened with why we had a 20-year war in Afghanistan. Mm. Because the people who were there were, a lot of people like us, didn't know anybody who was in that war, and didn't have reason to think about that war, and were very happy to say thank you for your service. Yeah, but when it became when when there was some issue of more uh, if their effort or if the issue required more effort on their part, they were kind of yeah no no I think I'm pretty good, I'm good, and and so there is this you know kind of damning assessment of of elites, uh, people like us, in terms of how much we really are willing to to walk the walk. Just to go back to this
1: thing about regional inequality and rural and urban, I think it's a point worth just kind of um, illuminating a a bit more because, and I'm not making an economic anxiety argument around Trump, But I do think that there's something to be said about what happens when opportunities are clustered in certain areas and there's no opportunity in other areas. How people respond to that um, in their kind of everyday life, right? How people respond to unemployment, poverty, it's, it's, it's almost, right? Like people respond as as anybody would respond, across racial groups, right? And what that does to democracy. That people who, um, that when opportunities are clustered in some areas and devoid in other areas, that is also going to have political ramifications.
0: And it's not something that, um, that these areas would be Bending over backwards to get, if it were not for the fact that there were very few other opportunities out there to get. Right. But I do want to say that I think it's something I just want to reiterate something I mentioned before about um, how I just think this um, labor just needs to uh, up its game here. This is a new, this is not a lunch bucket uh, manufacturing union job that needs. Organizing here. It's distinctive, it's different, and their corporate enemy is very, very smart.
1: Well, okay. Just to be sure that there is some calibrating of our time scales that we might need to do here, right? A failure in Bessemer on the first go round is not a failure, right? I mean, these organizing labor happens over years, not. In a, in a couple of months or even in a year or two, right? These are, these kind of changes often take a long time.
0: No, I absolutely agree with that. I, I just think that, you know, it's unlikely that the uh, the climate of opportunity is going to be much better than it is right now for for American labor. And so now is the time for um, them to to grasp this very difficult challenge and try to move it forward. Do you agree with that? No. Why, why not?
1: I don't think that most Americans are ready to give up whatever small goodies they're gonna get as consumers when the rubber hits the road. That is a cultural change that has to happen among Americans, that we are willing to give up something for ourselves for the greater good. We should all be more mindful of where we're shopping and the decisions that we're making, um, the people that we interact with who do the labor that helps us like get our day going, right, and moving. And that would be a major change, I think, even for us as individuals, just on a day-to-day basis, to be more conscientious about those things.
0: Democracy makes demands on us um, as citizens and as consumers, and we all can do better at that, and we can all benefit from a reminder that that is the case.
1: And that I agree with.
0: Knew we'd get there sooner or later. McGillis's book is really uh, chock full of a lot of really infuriating stories, but it's, you know, it is in also really interesting in terms of kind of account and accounting of where we are as a nation right now. And if what we just said is true, then that's the kind of thing that um, all of, that all of us need and that we should consider ourselves in his debt for having given us. For Democracy Works, I'm Chris Beam.
1: And I'm Candace Watts-Smith. Thanks for listening.
2: Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our producer, and our editors are Jen Bortz, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. If you liked what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. Democracy Works is a proud member of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts focused on democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Learn more at democracygroup.org.
0: Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.